Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Spider-Man: Far From Home. Everywhere I go, I see his face. I just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone. <laughs> You gonna be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. What? Oh. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work. Because I am going on vacation. Heads up, Nick Fury's calling you. I don't really want to talk to Nick Answer Fury. Answer the phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. You sent Nick Fury to voicemail? I gotta go. You do not ghost Nick Fury. What up, dorks? What's up? We're just talking about the trip. I'm here in St. Marco Polo's. Oh, I think MJ really likes me. That reminds me when I first fell in love. You're a very difficult person to contact, Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. Who could have used someone like you on my world? New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. Maybe someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. What do you want, Peter? I want to go back on my trip with the girl who I really like and tell her how I feel. MJ, I am Spider-Man. No, of course I'm not. I mean, it's kind of obvious. You're right, you may not be ready, but this is my responsibility. Saving the world requires sacrifice. Sometimes people die. Oh my god. I just always feel like I'm putting my friends in danger. The world needs the next Iron Man. Are you going to step up or not? I work with Spider-Man. You work for Spider-Man? I work with Spider-Man, not for Spider-Man. New plan. Joining us tonight, we have Theo Lee of the New Century Multiverse. Hello. Hollywood actress Maya Santandrea. Hello, everyone. And Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How do you do? Disclaimer. All opinions stated on the show are just opinions. Other opinions are available from your local YouTube. This is the 23rd Marvel film and serves as an epilogue to the events of Infinity War and Endgame and to Phase 3. And, in fact, to the first three phases, which, in retrospect, much like the end of Harry Potter, feel like a much larger, more detailed and nuanced and emotional version of their Philosopher's Stone Phase 1. But it also functions as a prologue and a new beginning for Phase 4. A lot has happened since Homecoming. Possibly the most a character has ever gone through between the first two movies in their series. Never has the impact of Marvel's long-form storytelling been more apparent than when you compare the journey of this Spider-Man Film 1 to Spider-Man Film 2 to, say, Iron Man Film 1 and Iron Man Film 2, or Thor 1 and Thor 2, or even Captain America. 
Peter Parker was inducted to the Avengers, fought to protect the universe, failed, was obliterated, along with half of all life, then came back from oblivion and succeeded, but lost his mentor in the process, and in fact had to accept that these vanguards of the Earth were all moving on to greener pastures of their own. And now apparently, he's Earth's mightiest hero. It's a little different to, now John McClane's in Washington, and basically the same thing happens, but this time in an airport. The same shit happened to the same guy twice. Another thing that's happened since Homecoming in 2017, it's a little movie you may have heard of called Into the Spider-Verse. Nothing short of a masterpiece of animation and screenwriting, this film delighted all who saw it, making this the movie of the year for many, despite coming out within the same span of months as Black Panther, and making only $375 million, which is less than half of the box office of Homecoming. It was and remains a big deal, and people love it intensely, and it is tough to compete with. And that in itself is an amazing, spectacular feat. How often do we hear the words, it's tough for the MCU to compete with that? (laughs) So I've seen a lot of people comparing and ranking the movies with Far From Home getting a very warm reception. It's not the seventh, but the eleventh official big screen outing for The Wall Crawler, or at least big screen inclusion of The Wall Crawler. There's the Raimi trilogy, the Web duology, John Watts 2 so far, Miles's introduction, The Wars, Civil and Infinity, and Endgame. All the way back in 2014, we had five films to choose from over a 12-year stretch. Just two Spideys. Now, as I said, there's 11 movies and 12 Spideys. Let's count them off. Maguire, Garfield, Holland, Miles, Pine, Gwen, Penny, Sweatpants, Noir, Pig, 2099, and the one that points a lot, with potentially infinite Spideys to come. This puts pressure on the individual Spider-Peoples to nail down who they are. And in the case of Tom Holland's Peter Parker, he is the one whose life has been exponentially affected by his connection to the Avengers, their affiliates, and in particular one Anthony Stark, R.I.P. He is the one who shares a history with the MCU that we've all grown up with. On a side note, in preparation for seeing Far From Home and to make that cameo at the end hit as hard as possible for Lyra who'd forgotten these films, I re-watched Spider-Man 2 with Sharon and Lyra before they saw the new movie. Back when we covered that trilogy on Digital Drift in 2014, it was kind of a weird, dark time for the brand in comparison with our current golden age where everything he seems to touch turns to gold, like King Spiders. This surely can't last. Even Venom did gangbusters. And when Sharon and I talked the Raimi films, she was only just recently my co-host, we still hadn't seen Amazing 2, and we really only had Mark Webb's dismal first film to pit against them. You remember that one, the one that began as a low-budget, Twilight-inspired, young adult teen romance drama, but somehow ballooned into a partial remake of Raimi's original with an inflated budget for the lizard storyline that nobody wanted to see. We watched it again recently, and all I can say is that it's very long and no fun. I was harsh on the originals and probably way too generous with the reboot, which in retrospect really only did one thing right, namely the casting of the luminous Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. It's number 11 on my ranked list of Spider-Man appearances, by the way. Spider-Man 2, this time in 2019, was more entertaining for the distance that we had established. I now appreciate more the whippy editing, the energetic camera, the story of a conflicted Peter. Even if it is effectively a cartoon, it's a visually appealing one painted in broad brushstrokes. 
I still intensely dislike Maguire's casting and the positioning of his Peter as a milky-eyed old sad sack with no ability to empathise with or relate to other human beings. And some of those 2004 FX really don't hold up today, especially on Doc Ock, whenever he turns from a suspended Alfred Molino on a green screen into a free-roaming jib-jab. But I can see why so many hold these movies dear. This will never be my Peter Parker. To me, he's a wet paper bag filled with cottage cheese. But if he's the guy who helped you get back up when you've been knocked down, then he's done more good in the world than most. I don't think I have a definitive Peter Parker because things just keep getting better and better. I am, in fact, spoiled for choice with the selection we have now on display. The adorable Holland, the crumbum Peter B. Parker played by Jake Johnson, the subtle relatability of Yuri Lowenthal's PlayStation Spidey. There is, of course, Miles and the animated wonder that is Josh Keaton's spectacular Spider-Man. But let's think about this Tom Holland Peter Parker and consider that Sony were offered collaboration with Marvel in 2012 when Garfield was just starting out. And they declined, saying they were going to make their own cinematic universe with Black Cat and the Sinister Six. Really, only Venom has come of that decision so far. But the inclusion of this Peter in 2016's Civil War was something that happened during pre-production. He was not there from the beginning, only potentially there on Kevin Feige's magic flowchart. The big new introduction was going to be T'Challa until they got the ability to give us both of them in what is back to the top spot on my overall favorite MCU film, The Civil War. Homecoming being put on the table bumped Carol's first outing. Ergo, the plan would have been to end Phase 3 with Avengers 3 Part 2, which eventually became Endgame. Far From Home may not have existed at all, and if the Amazing series had been huge hits, we might be getting our Rocket Racer solo pick this year instead, with Garfield still in the suit and probably a different kind of Spider-Verse. And that's if we got Spider-Verse at all. In fact... Jared Leto's Morbius the Living Vampire will be the next glimpse we get of what that movie series would have entailed. So to my guests, first just imagine an Infinity War without Peter Parker, without the young Galahad to accompany Arthur into space with Merlin only to fail. As orgasmic as that ending of Endgame was, imagine it without Peter rematerializing and remaining pretty much the last hero standing who doesn't have his own country or mystical realm or, checks notes, entirety of outer space to take care of. So it stands to reason that because we have him, the lion's share of this film is informed by the combination of pressure on Peter to be the Avengers all on his own, coupled with the same complete lack of information as we have regarding what the hell happens now. And all the while, the ghost of Tony Stark follows Peter around the world. His face is painted on walls, his technology is handed over to Peter, his words and advice and his trust, and the notion that this rare commodity may have been unwarranted and misplaced, haunts young Peter, who himself is kind of a ghost, returning to a world where people have in part, moved on. Fortunately, Happy Hogan is still there after all these years since film one, still playing a babysitting sober uncle, both employed in that capacity and compelled to try his best on a personal level to steer his charge straight. As laid-back Sancho Panzas go, they don't get much more dedicated. So, to begin with, let us talk about the blip and the whole world bouncing back from utter calamitous disaster 
which gets explained, referenced, and lightly explored in this film. Personally, it reminded me of the end of Shaun of the Dead. Did it turn out the way that you folks thought it would? It kind of did for me, because the realistic way that people reacted to it, everything's chaos and, and people coming back. It, it would be treated as a dramatic event, yes, but there would also be you know like little things to worry about, like a, a band member popping back in in the middle of a basketball game. That's weird. <laughs> and funny. You know, it, it, it's, it's horrible what happened to get there, but it's, it's funny. And that, that's just, just the way something like that would play out. It's like there would be these little moments of hilarious chaos that come about. And I thought that was very realistic. As realistic as that could get. That's actually one of the ways in which the MCU, very much um, exemplified by this film, gets to the heart of how humans tend to cope with things. We're very elastic. We'll respond to tragedy in a very dramatic way for a short period of time, but we can't sustain that level of high drama, high tension and high emotion without snapping back into something. This is why I actually think that the MCU's bent toward humor helps the dramatic beats punch harder because no one is just all morose all the time. Um, and this, this is something that, you know, you touched a little bit on um, in, in regards to that particular balance and way back when we were doing Thor Ragnarok, Alex, but, the in memoriam segment is perfect because it is exactly the kind of thing that people who are bad at video editing would do in an earnest attempt to try to <laughs> pay homage to something that you can't really wrap your mind around. Like the world half ended. It almost ended for real. And one of the most famous people of all time gave their life to protect it after like several other people gave their lives to help in that quest and like so how do you as a high school student process that well you make a crappy video thing that you throw up during your morning show and gosh darn it you're trying but it's just kind of funny and that's how everyone is dealing with the blip you've got like these the sad sack sort of like yeah my wife pretended to blip but she left me or now my younger brother is my older brother and and all this stuff that they never really make a meal out of, but they do certainly make, uh, they do certainly put paid to the idea that, oh, the snap at the end of Infinity War is never going to matter because they're just going to undo it. Huh. Well, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> yeah. They make it, uh, I, I they make it that. clear that there are real world consequences for this stuff. And just to jump off of a point that you made, Brandon, this is a very typical, like, it's very age appropriate how these kids react to it. Like you said, you would do this sort of thing if you were at that age and it sort of keeps the film grounded because they have a very appropriate response to everything that's going on around them. Theo, you were saying something? Yeah, as, I was saying as a graphic artist, I I love hated that video <laughs> because it's seeing the, the watermark, the Getty Images watermark. I was, yeah, I was the only person and, who went ha! at that. And, in the, and the Comic Sans. The comic like, Sans! Oh! Chef's kiss. Yeah. Yes. They used it back in Homecoming. It's yeah. that's consistent. Well, my my immediate thought when I saw the in memoriam was, oh, they're doing the in memoriam to Stan Lee, but they're doing it now. And then I went, no, it's Comic Sans. They wouldn't use Comic Sans. What is this? <laughs> it was great. I I think one of the things I really liked about the whole blip addressing was first of all the fact that everybody was calling it the blip. 
which makes it feel like an instant thing, which of course for the people who've come back, it was. They made the point that everybody has their own individual way of reacting to this. And as you say, that that overlays the, there are no real consequences to this because, oh yes, there are. And they are many and intricate and we can't possibly encapsulate all of them in the space of a film. And it's, it's one of those little, well, little, massive, far-reaching background details that Marvel have always been really good at putting in their movies to, to really give you a sense of how big this universe is. And I really appreciated that. It's this may not perfect... be... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Brina. Oh, just just the, the, the name, the blip, it's the perfect shitty name that something like this would get. Like, it's the... <laughs> It's the, the Googleized version of, you know, a, 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 a thing that we can't truly comprehend, but we're going to boil it down to a syllable because that's easy to hashtag. Mm, absolutely. And I can imagine to- how frustrated that would make the people who did not disappear because it's like, that wasn't a blip. That was five years of trauma. Yeah, exactly. And you didn't have to actually experience that. You just disappeared. I really hope they do expand on those ideas a little bit more. I know this particular film may not have been the best option for them to do that, but I hope they do explore that the consequences of these sort of things in a larger context as they go forward. If you think about it, Wakanda didn't have a king for five years. There was no Sorcerer mm-hmm. Supreme for five years. Yeah, either either Winston Duke was very busy or... <laughs> or T'Challa's mom was just, you know, <laughs> running things or, or something. But you think Wong got a promotion? I mean, he was there for a lot of it. He was in the sanctum. We can but speculate. A lot of what we're waiting on will be slow reveals of, okay, so it's created this problem and it's created this problem. And these will all be great food to get us into the next phase. Yeah. Well, all of those ripples will give them windows of opportunity to create change within the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something they can basically make a meal out of for years. It's like, oh, well, this... This is just something that happened because of the blip or during the blip. Like, back many, when you're just like, yeah. you know what? It's Tony's fault. How many times it's have the they new, mentioned Tony's fault. the Battle of New York? That's something that affected a few million people. Mm-hmm. This affected not just everyone on Earth, everyone in existence. It's crazy. Everyone's out of step with everyone because of this. So, <clears throat> question two. Why is it important that Aunt May now works in community support? Or if not important, noteworthy. Because Aunt May needs things to do. I mean, that's... <laughs> that, oh, that's Peter, I made the, you some wheat cakes. That's one of the things that's the best part about the, the PS4 game is that Aunt May's... You get a reflection of Peter's strive towards responsibility and doing good in her, um, but in a very ground-level way. And even if this particular Aunt May, I don't think she's quite had, like, an incredibly meaty storyline to her yet, it still makes her feel like a person rather than just a prop mm. because that's the, that's the problem with aunt may as you know, Spider-Man stories get weirder and weirder is she can either just disappear or she can just end up acting like a prop, neither of which are necessarily good writing and certainly a waste of Marissa Tomei. Yeah. It's also a way of, uh, kind of piping in Peter's backstory in retrospect because if he's been raised by a woman who would go and do this 
then that gives you a lot of information about where his motivation to be a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man mm. comes from. Also remember that uh, May blipped. She even describes uh, her coming back into an apartment where people thought she was a ghost. Um, so her response to coming back and feeling like a ghost was to try to help people. So, yeah, it's, it's, to- it's totally drawing from the game. Do we think it might be a little bit of a distraction as well? Yeah. Like she's doing the community service stuff because she's come back, is a little out of sorts. She's definitely been displaced as a result of this. And now it's something to do while she figures out where her life is going to go and when she is figuring out what to do with Peter. In a lot of ways, in this film at least, it seemed like she <laughs> she was a little bit out of touch with uh, with Peter in a lot of uh, in a lot of parts. She didn't really seem to be, you know. She mentioned the whole uh, Peter Tingle thing, which I thought was really funny, and that was a, a cool way for her. To, oh, you know, I you'll you'll get it back. No worries, no worries. But she doesn't. She also doesn't seem to really connect to the fact that Peter's really struggling, and. The whole part of her, you know, being busy with her job and trying to get into a new relationship almost feels like that is being used as a way to not deal with him in a lot of ways, which, you know, nothing, nothing against Aunt May. That's a perfectly normal and understandable reaction to have to something like that. But it does, unfortunately, leave Peter open to a lot of uncomfortable situations, a lot of situations where he is compromised or his feelings often appear like they're being ignored as a result of that. We never got to see that conversation immediately following the, what the fuck at the end of the uh, first film. But uh, we could interpret this as not just her reaction to coming back from the blip. Maybe she even started this not too long after finding out um, her nephew was Spider-Man as a way of, rather than just hanging around the house worrying about him, maybe trying to help the neighborhood as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was somewhat inspired by him. He must have said something along the lines of, I can't do nothing with this. Mm. And also the fact that this that Far From Home has been in relief, Mm. if that makes sense, more than Homecoming did. Although Uncle Ben is never explicitly mentioned, it seems pretty apparent that they are going to deliberately avoid replaying that origin story because it's been done so often that everybody knows it. But there are now shadows and spaces where he ought to be. I mean, there's a couple in Homecoming. The uh, the clothes in the wardrobe and a, a few other th- bits and pieces. But Oh, and here in Far From Home, the initials on Peter's luggage read BFP, Benjamin Franklin Parker. From that perspective, if we assume that that is the case, that Uncle Ben was there prior to the start of Homecoming, we just don't get to see him, then May has trauma on trauma on trauma that she potentially hasn't processed any of yet. Mm-hmm. Well, neither she nor Peter are doing much. To, they're, they're both taking different ways to avoid processing their trauma because Peter's very deliberately trying to avoid anything to do with the Avengers because that brings back Tony feelings and, oh yeah, I sort of died feelings. And and all that. he's trying to just go back to the neighborhood and have things be like they were and go back to being a normal kid and doing everything he possibly can to to avoid coping with this 
this thing that happened and that turns into avoiding responsibility, which is the the thing that always works out the worst for Spider-Man. Mm. I, love I, mean, how, I love how he said he sort of died. Oh, he clicked me out of existence. Yeah. I got better. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a nice bookend effect with the fact that in Homecoming, Peter is desperately trying to be an Avenger. He's trying to grab that responsibility and is constantly being told, you are not ready for this yet. And then it's like, have all the Avengers in the world. Yeah, exactly. In Far From Home, it's like, okay, you are now all the Avengers. What? I'm not ready for that. (laughs) So the it's in a way it shows how he's grown that he is now able to self-analyze and recognize what he's not ready for. In a way, it's fear, and as he gets older, his his fear of growing up kicks in. You know, it's that thing where when you're a teenager, you're desperate to be a grown up so you can go out and drink and drive, not necessarily concurrently, but, you know, do all of those things that you can't do until you hit the age limit that your country has arbitrarily placed on this particular activity. Um, And then once you become a grown up, it's like, I'm not ready for this. (laughs) Please take it all away again. And he, he goes into full on avoidance mode. Theo, yeah, uh, like actively, like actively runs away from it too. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the things I think is very important to note is that he is not just avoiding things; he is very specifically running away from anything having to do with responsibility, anything to do with reminding him of the Avenger. So much that he, you know, he books out of the entire country mm-hmm. you know he goes across an entire ocean to get away from them or at least to try to get away from them and as we see the things that he's trying to run away from keep coming back up again i haven't seen all 10 other spider-man films back to back recently is there a spider-man film where he comes out to aunt may and they discuss it there is not there wow. is a i mean which right it seems like a there was a whole Straczynski they, graphic novel just about that. I love that run so damn much. It's so good. Yeah. For the record, folks, that's Amazing Spider-Man Revelations. This is one of the things I love about the Raimi films. Is they dance around that a little bit, similar to how Gwen's dad um, no, kind of knows in Spectacular, but they never actually come out and say it. Mm-hmm. Um, Aunt May almost explicitly does know in the second and third Raimi film. All right. And a couple of their heart to hearts are specifically like, you know, the hero speech in the second one. And then her saying, I don't think Spider-Man should kill. Mm-hmm. Wink, I believe wink, there's a hero in, the in all one. of us. Yeah. No, those are some really exactly. good bits, especially they, if you read that as she knows he's Spidey. Yeah. But they never really have a, you know, have a big coming out and, and the, the trust and that it does seem like a bit of a missed opportunity because it's, it's a great way to end homecoming. Yeah. Wow, like, thinking about it, I think we're almost past that point now. Like, uh, obviously in this, but like, I don't think we could even see uh, a Peter Parker telling Aunt May because she'd be like, "Oh, I can't deal with this," and it's like we're so far beyond these themes now. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and she knows in the game, doesn't she? It's 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 here. I think it's said at the end. Mm. She knows in Spider Verse because she's his Alfred. Well, yeah. <laughs> But the point is, we've moved we beyond don't, that yeah, in we each don't see of those. Does out. poor Sally Field get, ever get told, or is she totally clueless the whole way through two films? Yes. 
Oh, she, well, she gets told. No, 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 as in she's totally clueless the whole way through ah. two films. I, honestly, The Amazing Spider-Man should never have existed. If they'd just waited between Spider-Man 3 and Homecoming, that would have been better for the world. Though... I really love Homecoming, and I, I love what they've done as a result, even if what they had to do was go, let us keep him out of Manhattan, let us never touch the origin, let us never mention Uncle Ben, and we, we're not just going to retread the Raimi films. They've been themselves actively avoidant. It's a much more engaging dynamic for, for Spidey to have people, civvies, so to speak, in his corner that he can fall back on for support, for uh, to moral support, technical support, etc., than to have him be another, the thing of the the hero being a, a lone, uh, nobody knows, woe is me, my life is so difficult, and I can tell no one, uh, let me go sit on a rooftop and mope about it for a little while. And There's a lot more moping in the uh, web films, but, uh, but you're right about yeah, the, him not having a support group in the Raimi films. He's not only got not got a support group, he has no internal dialogue. He doesn't, like, in the first film, he's sort of narrating a bit at the beginning and a bit at the end. But, and it's so miserable. But when he's pulled back and forth between, shall I be Spider-Man or can I just be Peter Parker? That's a conversation he needs to have with himself, with other people. Like, we, we, we can, that's drama. Mm-hmm. And it's all just expressed through Tobey Maguire's face, which... I have problems with, but other people don't. Your mileage may vary. There's a metaphor in there, I think, particularly given that when you're dealing with Spider-Man, you are so very often dealing with a, a, a child up to somebody who is a very, very young adult and still getting used to the whole dealing with the world situation. But I think there is a, a definite metaphor in there for keeping a part of yourself hidden, whether that be... Uh, sexuality, whether that be gender questioning, whether it be mental health issues, whether it's a a learning disability or or something like that, that people can't necessarily see when they meet you, but you have to expend all of this energy in hiding it Mm. and keeping it under wraps and making sure that nobody ever finds out and everybody thinks you're normal and it's, you know... That we are moving societally away from the idea of, yes, this is the right way to do it, keep it hidden, and don't burden anybody else with it, and and your life will be better because everybody will treat you as if you're normal, and into, no, that's bullshit, and people shouldn't have to expend all of that energy in keeping themselves hidden. And if you want to look at the parallel, if uh, uh, being Spider-Man is a secret life of being gay and keeping that in the closet... A certain person just outed the fuck out of him at the end of this film. Which, that... Okay, so, I... That is one of my favorite aspects that they've ever done with this MCU version of Spider-Man. Um, I I adore the Raimi films because they came out at the perfect time for me. Um, I saw the first one the summer I got together with my then high school sweetheart. I saw the second one the summer right after I'd like proposed to her. I saw the third one the summer right before we got married. It's this whole thing. I can't, I like them more now. (laughs) I can't separate them from, from like these huge things in my life. And they were just, they were just right there at the right time. But there was always this understanding that there was a protected status quo with the Raimi films. Even if characters would die or they would have a big, a big change of like, okay, now Peter's in college and now there's this, there is an understanding that there are certain rules that don't get broken. Peter might get unmasked on the train, but 
we, the audience, and they, the people on the train, will keep his secret. Mm. We have this understanding with him. Um, it's And to be fair, like it, New York has millions and millions of people. Chances are anyone actually recognizing, oh, you're that guy who delivered pizza late. <laughs> um, but it but it always felt slightly artificial with this the the fact that he's like you said he's been outed that's never been tackled before in the movies in a meaningful way and only sort of brushed up against in the spectacular spider-man series hmm. and it also really plays up the consequences of peter's actions which are one of the best parts of this film dramatically that the, it, as much as I like Homecoming, I think that it's focused more on being a comedy than on like Peter's choices having these huge far-reaching effects, which is fine because it's a good reset. But with this, he makes a very big choice that completely fucks him over. And it screws his friends over in a big way. And then it just keeps, even when he thinks he's fixed it, it keeps messing with him. It's almost like they get a second bite at the apple of Uncle Ben. The irony being that this is a decision he's going to regret when he was trying to do the responsible thing. This is how we get Spider-Man the outlaw. This is how we get Spider-Man is he a menace. A criminal! He's a menace to the entire city! I want that wall-crawling arachnid prosecuted! I want him strung up by his web! I want Spider-Man! This is how we get a version of Spider-Man that feels true to the J.K. Simmons in the Raimi films wanting to take him down, but without going through all of those different motions. It's so exciting. Also, uh, while Uncle Ben's always been a great role model of like this kind old man who, uh, or in the, I suppose in the case of this, this version of May, a kind, approaching middle-aged man uh, who uh, inspired Peter to be a kind, decent, forthright person himself in this universe. Okay, so if you go back to the original Raimi version of Spider-Man, that Uncle Ben, the, the, the carjacker wanted his car and Uncle Ben said no, so he shot him and took the car. In Amazing Spider-Man, Martin Sheen, it's a very confused sequence, but he actually seems to be going for the gun because it seems like this guy who's just dropped it and, and robbed a shop, might be dangerous. And Was there a struggle with a woman on the street as well? He bumps into a woman on the street yeah. as he's running past. And it seems like other people might get hurt, so Martin Sheen grapples with him. But Peter's not actually there to see that, and there's no direct confluence of events. The equivalent to Uncle Ben in Spider-Verse is Aaron, and he decides not to do what the kingpin tells him to do and to be merciful to his own nephew, which most human beings would say was the right thing to do, and get shot as a result for it. But it's not the same as being an inspirational good person trying to help people even though your life is on the line. That's personal choice. That's endangering your own life for someone you love. That's not the same as the great power, great responsibility. In this Peter's case, we have Tony Stark giving up everything to save everyone Iron Man that is like Uncle Ben times a bajillion and there's yep. no way that this Peter can ever lay that to rest he watched him do that there's a good reason they haven't really referenced Uncle Ben. It, it pales in comparison to what Tony Stark did. 
I, I still wouldn't mind if we actually like <laughs> saw a photo of him or something. Uh, my my dream is that we see like a photo of Chris Pine on on Marissa Tomei's wall, and that's yeah, well, Chris is <laughs> And also <laughs> an interesting little uh, tie-in with the other like uh, the, the Peter Parker. Nice, exactly. Mm-hmm. Nice, I, but honestly, I, I I would like to see something to do with Uncle Ben in the next one, mm-hmm. and it would be a nice way to close out uh, the trilogy. Which I don't even think that this is going to be a trilogy anymore. I feel like they're they're kind of just getting started with this, Peter. And also, you got to think about bringing Miles in. Peter is at the moment not yet ready to be in mentor status. Put a couple more movies, maybe even just one more under his belt, then we can start bringing in Miles. You know. I think that would be than, nice. More than any of the earlier Marvels, this line feels like it's going to be governed very strongly by what kind of career does Tom Holland want to have? Yeah. Because he's like RDJ, there's always been this sort of big deal about the fact that they, they got him into this multi picture deal and he was the backbone of how the Marvel Universe grew, mm. but he'd had a career. And this gave him a second wind. With Tom Holland, he's got to make a very important choice about whether he wants to basically carry on being Spider-Man as long as they'll let him, or whether he wants to break it off and go and do other stuff. Yeah. Fury asked me to come up here and see how you were doing. He just, he felt bad about snapping at you. Really? You guys do have sarcasm on this earth, right? (laughs) How are you feeling? I didn't think I was going to have to save the world this summer. I know that makes me sound like such a jerk. I just... I had this plan with this girl that I really like, and now it's all ruined. I like you, Peter. You're a good kid. There's a part of me that wants me to tell you to just turn around, run away from all this, and then there's another part of me that knows what we're about to fight, what's at stake. I'm glad you're here. Me too. But you're worried about your friends. Yeah. I just always feel like I'm putting them in danger. Look, just get them inside and keep them in a safe place for just a few hours and they'll be all right. It's really nice to have somebody to talk to about superhero stuff, you know? Anytime. This might be an appropriate time. Theo... What did your mom, the teacher, say about this film? Well, um, she has a lot of experience dealing dealing with teenagers. She taught uh, high school for more than 40 years. So, And uh, she also taught literature. So she knows the the structure of storytelling and symbolism and all that. Uh, I liked the sweet and maybe, maybe even innocent flirting between the teenagers. Too many movies you see looks exchanged. And then the next thing you know, they're in bed together. I think it's actually more realistic that people go through that, I'm not looking at you, are you looking at me, stage of flirting. To me, it was refreshing to see the teenagers acting like real teenagers against the backdrop of the fantasy story of the superhero. Uh, I especially liked MJ uh, because she didn't fall into the stereotype of it's all about me that you see with the depiction of teenage girls in most movies and television shows. She was strong yet uncertain, assertive yet wanting to be attractive to Peter, but she wasn't willing to compromise her intelligence in order to appear attractive. I really liked her character. That leads us very neatly onto my next question. Uh, how has Mary Jane evolved from the classic Kirsten Dunst portrayal in the Sam Raimi trilogy? 
I think in part the general perception of the girl next door has changed significantly. MJ Some in, might say that the girl next door idea had changed significantly by 2002 and in fact it felt really goddamn old fashioned. Well, yes. When Mary Jane just exited the house after her father and mother having a horrible screaming row and Peter rather than going, "Oh my god, you okay?" goes, "Hey Mary Jane, you look like a beautiful angel when you played Snow White." Peter, that was like 12 years ago and I'm freaking out here. Oh, you feel bad, Mary Jane? Um, continue, <laughs> Continue. Yeah, teenagers are selfish, but there is a special brand of not looking at what real life within this cartoon is happening right in front of his face that that particular Parker is guilty of for three goddamn movies. Continue. Sorry. Folks, that, that's fine. I think mm. you have actually quite neatly encapsulated there what, what my issue okay. with that's the just, that, That's a starter. That's a starter. Yeah, yeah. You can continue. On. That's a starter, and also like, it, like you were saying, uh, Alex, this is not you know like the the stories almost universally take place in Queens, New York, which is a very diverse. Uh, borough of New York. They're not just going to be a whole, you know, a pardon, but they're not just going to be a whole bunch of white people living in your neighborhood. It's going to be a mix. So I was very happy with this version of Mary Jane. If no other reason, she better represents the kind of, actually, I would say as a whole, the all of the casting decisions in the new Spider-Man movies definitely better reflect the location, the actual geography of of where they are. I think as well, if you look at the the MJ of the comic books, the like earlier comic books, which the face it tiger, you just hit the jackpot. The party girl, Kirsten Dunst was very definitely supposed to be an echo of and sort of prompt the nostalgia for. That the whole point of her was always that she was the popular model, like the the reward that Peter was going to get for being Spider-Man. She did have her own shit going on, though. She did, yeah. but still, the emphasis was on the fact that not only did Peter want her, but everybody else did too. Mm-hmm. And it feels, it, it felt to me like the way they reshaped her character for the MCU is that this is a different kind of Peter and the quote-unquote reward that he should get is not to be handed a person who is seen as a trophy by everyone else, but to be able to be with somebody who can match him and support him and understand him and also presents him with someone to match and support and understand in order to develop himself as a person as well. Side note, we've been calling her Mary Jane. Her name is Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to stick to sorry, MJ. <laughs> abbreviated to MJ, but uh, that in itself, that change of name, first, it's like, oh, well, we're keeping it secret, and then it turns out it actually is her at the end. There was kind of a, a fury over that, the way that they, they hid that uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in uh, Into Darkness was in fact Khan. They were like, you can't squeeze a Khan past us, and then it turned out we were right. And then there was a... But uh, this might have been to do with a lot of boys saying she can't be mary jane she doesn't have red hair oh my sweet summer child (laughs) and in the case of those fans 
that's the best protest they had. Because the alternate there is, no woman of colour shall ever play Mary Jane. But just the name Mary Jane, the concept of the girl next door, needed an update, and changing her name to simply Michelle, or MJ, is a nice little way of just just nudging it a little bit forwards. Mm, And one of the things that this, um, well, especially Far From Home, does very well in changing how MJ is a part of the Spider-Man stories, um, it's true that Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane did have her own stuff going on, but any time the Spider-Man stuff bumped up against the Peter Parker stuff, there was like this switch where she got flipped from an active character pursuing active things to, okay, now she's a passive character. And the switch would get flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped. And so like you would have moments where, okay, she's pursuing her own thing. She's basically in charge of this scene here. And then now she's a lamp. Okay. Now she's back <laughs> to being a person again. Cool. What, that I lamp really got kidnapped rather a lot. Exactly. And, <laughs> and especially by the time you get to the third film and it's just, oh, come on. What We've seen this person be an active participant in their world. Why are they refusing to do things at all when, when ideally this is the time where they would do the most things? I, I don't know. But um, I love the production note, by the way, that uh, Ramey and company had to apologize to kiss and dunce they'd promised her this time we won't have you kidnapped and screaming and dangling off a high thing after the bad guy tries to get to spider-man by using you as bait uh and then they eventually had to do exactly that because of rewrites yeah. and and uh like last minute stuff but ultimately they swapped that out for what they were planning to do which is exactly the same thing but with gwen stacy it's like guys you do realize that having the same idea is not better <laughs> Exactly. Whereas with this, you do still have MJ with her own stuff going on. She's basically conducting her own investigation. That's one of the reasons she's, yes, she's watching Peter because, you know, he's he's cute and she's kind of into him. But also, she is curious. She's a naturally curious person. That's something that was established in the first film, and they pay it off here. So she gets a mini arc of discovering that he's Mm Spider-Man, wanting to get involved in this thing. She's the one who finds the widget. The, the very important widget, that's her. And then even though his actions... There's always a goober. Her, exactly, <laughs> she finds the goober. And even though his actions, his very deliberate choice, puts her in danger, it's not the sort of danger where I'm going to kidnap you and try and lure you in as bait. It's, okay, I'm going to kill you now in order to protect a secret. And then she's still an active participant in this story, even though she is a potential victim. Mm. Also, and, Ned is just as much in danger as her. Exactly. Ned, I'm happy. All of them are. And yeah. it's and that's and that goes back to the, you know, the the FOS, the Friends of Spider-Man, giving me a very small but well-defined support network of just enough people know to really sell the I can't tell people I have to hide my face yeah. or else people I love will be in danger. And so you got people but, to talk to about that. Exactly. But still talk to them about that and still and still actually have drama and and humor related to it oh. without having to force yourself into weird situations all the time another side note if you go back and watch homecoming now michelle as adorable as she is does come off as a little bit of a creep like you can see her turning up where peter is just hanging around the background watching him drawing him what are you hiding peter and then it's like oh actually you've been thinking about this for a while i'm not obsessed with him just very observant it's like no she's she's had a thing for him for a while but like it's it's she's a little bit of a creep but in kind of an adorable way she's not 
trying to move in on him and then they manage to make her vulnerable enough in Far From Home and it's clear she takes pride in the fact that she worked this out through her own cunning and observation. You're like, oh, she really likes him. Mm. But in, so it, it's, she doesn't come off, like she's cool enough and conflicted enough for her to come off like a real person rather than a mouth breather. They managed The way that to... like Andrew Garfield often came off like a weird, creepy stalker in Amazing. Yeah, they, they managed to line up the characters so that her quirky matches his quirky. And when the story is not exclusively a romance that you are focusing on, that is hard to do. Hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that really annoys me about the whole I'm going to kidnap your girlfriend as bait so that you'll come after me, particularly with Spider-Man... By the way, that happened in Iron Man. I know, I know. It's a pain, but particularly with Spider-Man... It kind of happened in Incredible Hulk. It's massively insulting because it suggests that the only time he's going to be motivated to rescue somebody is if he's sexually attracted to them. Yeah. Like, you could grab any random New Yorker and Spider-Man would probably chase you down because he'd want to save them. The, the Spider-Man 2, I think I said um, back in the day that, uh, that the problem is that throughout the film he wants to be Spider-Man, but internally he doesn't want to be Spider-Man, which is actually cutting off his powers. He's losing the ability. He's effectively becoming impotent because his mind is elsewhere. He wants to be with Mary Jane. He decides to stop being Spidey after his powers keep failing on him, and he just decides, I can't. I don't want to do this anymore. He tells her very briefly, I'm back. I can actually be Peter Parker now. And then immediately afterwards goes into that burning building to uh, rescue people, which is the payoff to watching a guy get beaten up in an alley and not intervening, even though just a regular person could intervene with a beating. At least shout, someone's being beaten up in an alley so that other people can come with you and, and, and get these guys to run away. So to do something. So he finally starts doing something, then goes to MJ to tell her, I did say I was, could be Peter Parker and now I can't. And then Dr. Octopus turns up and steals her away. So he is obliged to become Spider-Man to go and save the day to get Mary Jane. Now, it's not contrary to how they've been going in the film, but it does require MJ to be in danger to really get him to be Spider-Man again. Mm, It it would almost be better if it's like, to be Spider-Man... I have to actively leave you behind. Mm. And also that the whole with great power comes great responsibility thing is to an extent somewhat naive when held up to the lens of it is apparent that the people with the greatest power mm. are abdicating that responsibility on a daily basis. Really, the appropriate ending of Spider-Man 2 is for MJ to see that Peter's Spider-Man and realise why he was trying to stay away from her and go, you know what? You're right. And I've realised now that I actually do want to be with you. And it's a dramatic, tragic irony. But you're right. I am in danger. And uh, you go be Spider-Man. I'm sorry. And then it's a tearful, sad goodbye ending. Mm. But that's a good, healthy move forwards. Except... For the fact that it requires Spider-Man to be a weird monk who doesn't have a relationship with anyone. And now now he's a Jedi. I saw a really good little thing. (laughs) Oh, now he's Batman. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the thing. Sharon's right about, and now he's a Jedi. I saw a really good thing on YouTube. I know it's impossible to sift through, but um, about Superman and saying, 
does he have a moral obligation not to have a relationship with Lois Lane? Does he have a moral obligation not to save people, to actually stop and, uh, and have a life? And the answer is, yes, he actually does. He has to be Clark Kent. I remember when we reviewed Man of Steel, I was lamenting the fact that they were going to pursue the Clark Kent angle because I was sick of seeing Kent being a, you know, a bumbling guy that everyone was too dumb to see with Superman. But if he's just a guy who lives in a fortress of solitude and spends every single moment of the day rushing around the planet writing wrongs, he turns into a cold, dead-eyed psychopath within years. Within months, frankly. He's got to unwind. He's got to have a life. Ergo, the whole bent of the Spider-Man trilogy of the original Raimi ones was the false idea that Peter can't have both. The, the reality is he should have both with the right person who understands they're in danger. Mm. And that's a mature way of moving forwards with it. They never quite reach that point. I'll give you another great example. Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Angel, when he... Excludes, you don't know how to switch off. Exactly. When he excludes being human yeah. in favour of just being a, you know, police-shaped, uniformed superhero, yeah. is he's not living and it makes him... And when he's tense, he's potentially dangerous. So I was totally wrong in 2013. Clark Kent is essential. Well, the benefit of having people who know is that it gives those people agency of whether whether they want to decide to associate with Peter slash Spider-Man at all. They can say, okay, oh yeah, I see this, this, this is too dangerous for me to be involved with. I'm going to distance myself. Or... I see that this is dangerous, but you need help, and I can do that. I'm going to stick with you. It gives them agency. Whereas the Mary Jane in the Raimi films, she she didn't know until much later, and she kept getting kidnapped. She doesn't know why. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't have any. What's going to do your head in? She why does this keep happening to me? She didn't yeah, know until like, well, the end of Why do these two... weirdos keep targeting me? And why does this other weirdo keep helping me? I don't know. She... There is a nod to that that tragedy because of the last shot after she watches him fly away and swing away and she gives that sad look to the camera like, oh, this is going to come back to bite me. And it does. But then she spends the next whole next film depressed as hell and Peter doesn't know or understand. He's like, hey, it's great being Spider-Man, isn't it? And honestly, all of this would kind of been worth it if they'd stuck the landing with Spider-Man 3. If it had all been leading up to Peter going, I've got to switch myself on and be more... I've got to activate my spider senses for other people. Because what's been holding me back is this self-absorption. But instead they double down on it so you get the disco dancing Peter acting like a complete fucking mullet. And at the end, when he asks Mary Jane to forgive him, it's more for can you forgive me for being that level of shit as opposed to the many years previous level of shit it was a mess and i think that's where three lets two and one down the hardest that's part of where this really does and again you know i i don't want to like shit on the the previous films but the the point of you you should respect someone and let them choose whether or not they want to put themselves in potential harm. Uh, and and that's how you get actual genuine support, which is what you need. Mm. Um, like, that's kind of the, the point of Spider-Man 2. But 
but the, again, they, they keep having Mary Jane be inactive versus active. And so it's a weird thing whether or not the movie can definitively have her make choices that matter because her agency keeps getting taken away just whenever they decide it has to. Um, whereas this, he's like, yep, okay, I'm Spider-Man. Um, I, I have to. And it's it's after they've actually, you know, taken care of the, the principal conflict of like, okay, we already know that we've succeeded against Mysterio. After all of that, do you still want to be a part of this? And yes, and it really feels like it's it's an important decision that she's made because, again, she still had the experience of being actively involved in this. You know, she had the whole thing where she picks up the mace and she's running around. She almost got killed. And so it just has much more weight to it. Hmm. This also touches on the notion of uh, superhero secret identities, which is something that was big in the Silver Age because Stan Lee just really loved that idea, Daredevil, Spider-Man. Tony Stark originally claimed that it was his bodyguard or a a robot was Iron Man. Um, Thor went around pretending to be Donald Blake for a long time, but gradually over the years in the comics, most of these secret identities fell away. So when Tony Stark finished his first Iron Man film with The Truth Truth is, Is... I am Iron Man. It was a strong statement that they were going to not do what the most successful superhero movies up to that point had been doing, which is the whole secret identity thing. It was on the table and they decided against it. Thor never even attempted to become uh, Donald Blake for longer than like a half scene or something like that when they were trying to convince S.H.I.E.L.D. who were unconvinced. And really, the the last vestige of that, if you don't count the Netflix TV shows, and no one does, is Peter. And he, he, he was the one holding on to a secret identity. So this is Peter being brought screaming up to date with Marvel and being told, you can't keep this thing hidden. Is this part of you or isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. You don't get that duality. Mm. You don't get that choice. You are now either Spider-Man or the living person formerly known as Spider-Man or the dead person formerly known as Spider-Man. <laughs> okay, so let's move on from the uh, from MJ and, and identities. Uh, what are the benefits of sending Peter Parker around the world in Far From Home? I think Maya already touched on this oh, with the yep. whole... It, it's, it's a way of showing his avoidance. He runs off around the world to try and get away from this. True, thematically, that is yeah. one aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to expand on that, it's, it's the idea that even if you keep running, you're going to end up coming up against the thing that you're... Like, the more you ignore the thing that is causing you this pain or this trauma, it's going to keep showing up for you. And there's... At some point, you're going to have to face it. Otherwise, you are never going to be able to escape Tony Stark's face on every screen, on every uh, side of wall, on every billboard. Like, he's just going to keep showing up until you stop and actually deal with it. One often meets his fate on the road he takes to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Nice. It is very Greek tragedy of the the thing that you're trying to to do to get away is the very thing that leads you to because so much of what he's trying to do is obviously trying to get away from the, the hole that Tony left in his life. And he goes across Europe and Tony's everywhere, which the, I really love how this film particularly plays with the idea of 
whether or not he's going to try to live up to Tony Stark and how he would and what that would mean. It really shows how uncomfortable Spider-Man is while still being somewhat capable outside of Manhattan because so much of the the Spider-Man stuff that we see him do, he's Mm. kind of flailing a little bit. It's like an extended version of that bit where he's running through the suburbs and homecoming because he's not necessarily comfortable being Spider-Man outside of his home turf, but he just really has to every now and then. And he, he gets bounced around a lot, which I, I love seeing Spider-Man on his back feet. That's kind of like my favorite place to see him where he's got like one finger holding on and he still manages to squeak through and sending him across Europe very much does that. Mm. Also, it also kind of puts him in a, a position where he is a little bit playing a, a support character for a lot of the events that are happening. Like this thing with Mysterio, he Mysterio really is taking front and center because as he leads people to believe he's the only one with the power to stop this very specific threat that's happening. So there's not a whole lot that Spider-Man can do except try to protect people, try and keep buildings from falling apart or falling on people. He's kind of forced into a supportive role and it's a very comfortable place for him to be in. It's kind of uh, a, a different way to bring him into this spot of, Here's here's your little comfy place where you're going to feel very secure. You don't have to really take on that much responsibility, but you're still kind of doing your job. It kind of gives him the opportunity to uh, be a little bit more lazy, and that's kind of what he's looking for right now. He wants that escape. He wants to kind of play second fiddle in this instant. He's very happy to have Mysterio take front and center and really come into the position that someone like Tony would have been in because he doesn't want to take it himself. It's noteworthy as well that Raimi's films did made the absolute most of the city of uh, uh, Manhattan, the, uh, the site of Spidey swinging through that. And especially after the PS4 game as well, so much of the first five movies were the city of New York is in danger. And even homecoming kind of had a bit of that with the final um, takedown of uh, the vulture. So it was kind of imperative that they, uh, with Berlin in uh, Civil War and then into space, and then uh, with this just uh, going to Europe, that they take Spidey for a bit of a ride to see what else he can do outside the skyscrapers. Uh, it's a, this is shallow in comparison to what you guys are talking about. But just in terms of setting, it's flexing the character rather than working tired muscles. You also get to have the arc of him like learning to be... This might be jumping forward a little bit, but having him become more and more comfortable with the way that he's experimenting with his place in the universe post-blip dovetails very neatly with how the film chooses to show him become more comfortable with fighting against uh, Mysterio's threats. Hmm. Now, I noticed that this film and Homecoming 2 seem to feature more than any other Marvel series an inordinate number of flawed, oblivious, and sometimes even incompetent grown-ups. Why do you suppose that might be? Because you're seeing it through the lens of teenagers. <laughs> All the Marvel films feature flawed, oblivious and incompetent grown-ups. It's just that because you're seeing them through their own eyes, they don't. it doesn't come across that way. Uh-huh. It's also, also act- it's, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and also, I mean, not just because they're teenagers, but like that is an accurate representation of a little thing that's going on right now where the whole world seems to be run by a bunch of incompetent, idiotic adults where it's like I, you, you need this power taken away from you. Would somebody just just get them away from these positions where they can make grand, sweeping, uh, uh, powerful legislation that affects millions of people's lives. You know, like that seems to be something that's happening all over the place, not just within our films. Our films are simply reflecting our reality. Spider-Man as the millennial who has to deal with the boomer screw-ups is such a good... Yes! It's it's such a good (laughs) gag from a character standpoint. Especially since this film chooses to play, okay, how do you succeed Tony Stark? Do you succeed him by choosing to use his toys and get the shiny toys? And now I have the shiny toys. Cough, cough. That's what Mysterio chooses to do in a very selfish way. Or do you choose to succeed Tony Stark by trying to fix the things that he kind of screwed up? Cough, cough. He created Mysterio. Now you have to stop Mysterio. And that's the path that, you know, that Peter ends up having to choose. But... Even if you choose right, you're still probably going to get a little bit rogered along the way because grown-ups are really good at screwing up the world. And the more money they have, the worse they can F it up. Mm. Yeah. Also- and also, he kind of takes the, the stance of Tony did some things that were not the best. Yes, my mentor made mistakes. He did things that were not always the, the most righteous course of action. But he had some really good ideas. So it seems like this version of Peter Parker is leaving aside the things about Tony's work and Iron Man's whole shtick, putting those things aside, but also adopting the things that did work. He's taking his ingenuity. He's taking his intelligence. He's learning how to use the systems that Tony created to make a a suit of his own that really reflects what he wants because he knows better than anyone what is going to best draw out his abilities and what's going to be the most useful thing to him. I so I kind of like, so yeah, I, I thought that was great. I was like, that's great. He's adopting the things that made Tony so admirable, but letting the things that were, he's, he's learning from his past mistakes. He really is learning and shedding all of those things that did not make Tony the most admirable person. I love the idea of him being positioned as a millennial fixing, uh, boomer screw-ups which leaves gen x's in the middle going hey what about us are we not represented here of course you're represented listen to the soundtrack we got some more ramones for you folks which seems to be the thing now (laughs) even shazam was jumping on the ramones train Uh, well it it, did the whole generational thing i mean peter is if he's a millennial he is the youngest of millennials but ultimately he's kind of very yeah Mm -hmm. he's very representative of the uh, what we're all crossing our fingers is is kind of going to be the millennial echo which is the hope in the face of mm. of almost certain doom <laughs> <laughs> insurmountable odds absolutely well, he's yeah. got this he's got this powerful empathy that contrasts neatly with tony's egocentric because as much as i love tony and as great a character as he is he's so much fixated on okay how do i fix my mistakes how do i do this for what I've done. He's so egocentric and Peter, and and especially like, I agree, Alex, that particular scene exemplifies how Peter is like Tony in some ways, but he's there in the workshop doing the thing, but he's 
partially doing it, you know, to obviously, you know, fix I made a mistake, I have to fix it, but it's like a not because I I made a boo-boo with the weapons and now they're going to the wrong people. It's my friends are going to die and I have to stop this now. It's it's a very he's very good at showing how selfless Peter Parker is, even though it's easy for Peter to be a selfish prat sometimes. Um, he bounces back from that very quickly, and that that particular sequence is so so good at balancing the using Iron Man's resources while still also having to creative on his own, which is a it's a tough needle to thread. I was kind of worried about Peter being a little bit too cushioned by Tony Stark, but this uh, again this movie you know strips that away very neatly and only gives just enough back for him to be able to you know. Because of obviously Tony Stark's tech isn't going to be what stops Mysterio. It's Peter's. It, it's the Peter tingle. Mm. Yeah, uh, editor's note: I didn't say that. Maya said that. I just agreed with her. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think that that whole the 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 methodology that Peter and Ned and all of the other incredibly tech savvy kids are going to feed into the next generation of heroes coming up. And I'm really really hoping that this is going to include shuri and this is going to include morgan and there's there's mm. going to be a, a, a broad range of very young heroes who are very proficient it it kind of gives me this this image of like the boomer attitude is there's nothing wrong there's nothing that needs fixing here the gen x is uh, there is nothing we can do to fix this. The millennials is right. We have to work out what to do to fix this. And I, Jenna, give it here. <laughs> you incompetent, flawed adult. Um, Let me show you how the iPad works. Exactly. <laughs> I have seen this read as, oh, it's just Iron Man again. And what you just uh, read it as there is that the major difference of being of Peter's empathy versus Tony's egocentrism makes it a very different animal to just Iron Man again. That's a reductive, even superficial read on this series. There's loads of tech in there, but I think we said this on our PlayStation 4 uh, one. Peter's always been about tech. Those web shooters were way ahead of tech in the 60s. He's always had, like, gadgets and stuff, and it makes perfect sense that his suit would not stop and never evolve beyond the stuff that Lee and Dicto figured out in the 60s and dreamed up there. It would advance, and, and his stark influence is never going to go away. But the way he handles things very differently from Tony Stark makes this son of Iron Man, but he's never going to be Iron Man, in his words, in Happy's words. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of visually summed up by the fact that he doesn't fly. He can glide. He can navigate. The, he can navigate different sorts of rooftops. He's finally comfortable away from the the skyline of Manhattan, where he thrives because he's got the you know the the better suit that can give him slightly more mobility. But he's still earthbound. He's still a little bit more grounded than Tony. He's he's still a little bit more in touch with the neighborhood. He requires physics. He can't just defy it. Yeah, and exactly. also his his functionality in his hands and feet is not like Tony's destructive, it's attaching him to things, which is a physical manifestation of that empathy that Tony lacked. That's lovely. 
Uh, especially at the end there, by the way, in terms of defying physics. Tony's, uh, we've said this during the Infinity War show, Tony's power set became basically Green Lantern. Like, I have prepared for every single eventuality, and I can make my suit do this, 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 and this. And eventually, uh, you are just tap dancing on the grave of physics no, by that point. Indeed. And uh, Doctor Strange is standing there with his arms folded going, for you to be able to fit all of this stuff in your suit, it would have to be ten times the size it is. Would that be his ten arms? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, next question. Mysterio. Can, I think that was how he said it in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. Ah, Mysterio can only exist in this through teamwork. Discuss. So I'm going to steal something from somebody. Um, this is this is something that I kind of I, I I noticed the him wearing the motion capture suit and then oh of course he's a special effects guy he's wearing a motion capture suit that's what you look like now if you're a motion if you're if you're a visual effects guy but the Infinity Podcast mentioned how Mysterio is kind of a a commentary on how Marvel makes their movies because Mysterio is basically the Marvel, the Marvel visual effects department. So you have to have teamwork. Mm -hmm. You can't just have, have one guy doing all this. You have to have the sound guy and the mocap guys, and you have to have the pyrotechnics guys for the, for the practical effects work. You have to have a team of people who are invested enough in blowing stuff up. And all his other incarnations, he's always been just one lone guy with, a special effects budget going up the wazoo and to, to pull off what he does alone he'd have to pick a location well in advance he'd have to set up all the equipment he'd have to make sure everything works and there's no way you could do that alone and it just makes much more sense for him to have this this team of people and for them all to be these miserable disgruntled people that definitely made more sense in the grand scheme of things too it wouldn't just be one person that Tony Stark has burned over the years. There's probably going to be more than one that have fallen by the wayside or got fired or an idea was stolen from them or borrowed from them or however you want to put it that don't look upon him very fondly anymore. Mm. In general, though, I have I have kind of weird feelings about Mysterio, and I don't know if we want to get into that too much right now, but uh, I, I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about him. Oh, we can continue. Well, he he kind of, in that disgruntled ex-employee sense, he does also echo Aldrich Killian from Iron Man 3. And his sort of, uh, you know, I'm going to take this insult that Tony Stark has thrown at me and go away and become the best version of myself I could possibly be. And the kind of the idea of him coming back and using that to manipulate the perceptions of everybody around him means he is able to go bigger and louder than Killian ever did by virtue of not really doing what he was trying to do. With, with the dynamics of the way he and his team uh, were brought together and the way they're, they're motivated, is that it's only a matter of time till one of them gets disgruntled with him and turns on him. Mm, yeah. Or or a small team within there within the the group because the, what motivates them is is bitterness and spite and greed. It's they they're not sustainable for a group 
to work together mm. because um, they're all very selfish motivations. Absolutely. And what is it that is their overall motivation? Is it to bring down Tony Stark's reputation because he's kind of beyond their damage now? It seems more along the lines of, well, now that Tony's gone, the world owes us now. Mm. We're going to reap everything that should have been given to us years ago when Tony was still alive. And now we're just going to take it. Yeah, they're, they're pulling a syndrome. And it's a... That's exactly what I was thinking the yeah. whole friggin' movie. And it drove me nuts. I was like, is he just syndrome? <laughs> is he just syndrome? Oh, no. <laughs> which, which I don't mind because... It's there's enough new stuff that they do with Mysterio that, you know, again, he's he's a very deliberate contrast to the way you would live up to Tony's legacy and how you do that if you're selfish versus selfless. But there is something to be said for the fact that there is enough advancement in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They, they have enough super science that you could conceivably invent yourself into a superhero and there are going to people be people who do that. But just because they're dicks, like not even because they're trying to get something back from the man like the vulture or to necessarily be evil like you you have with, um, I don't know, I guess uh, Whiplash um, or, you know, oh, no, what, no. Wh- Whiplash was just trying to make God bleed. Oh, and, yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, bring Tony Stark down by uh, attacking him once so that everyone the, the sharks would close in. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, but that was revenge for how his father was treated. He wasn't trying to be evil. That was uh, like they could have handled that character in a really good way, like just have him be no, you are a liar and American capitalist. And they could have made him a virtuous, true believer villain. But then they fluffed it. Yeah, but but this is a way in which yeah, no, he's just kind of a petty dick, and he's enough smart that he's dangerous about it. Um, like he's kind of the 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 like natural extension of the sort of like Elon Musk asshole tech bro dude that thinks they've they've got something to contribute when really they're just trying to get theirs in a fun way and they're just going to screw a bunch of people over and kill a bunch of people and they don't care because F you got mine. This reminds me of one of my favorite Spider-Man panels. I think there's got to be someone here who knows which one that is. Okay. Oh, I want to turn that's it, that's it. dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> Spider-Man says to Sauron in the Savage Land, this giant pterodactyl man, you can rewrite DNA on the fly and you're using it to turn people into dinosaurs. But with tech like that, you can cure cancer. But I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. It's that. <laughs> could, you, could you compromise and maybe turn them into dinosaurs without cancer? No. <laughs> Could you cure a bit no. of cancer and turn someone a bit into a dinosaur? No, it's dinosaurs are nothing at all. <laughs> Talk about extremism. Oh, Wait a minute, that's how you get Godzillas. Do you want Do you Godzilla? want Godzillas? Because <laughs> that's, that's how, how you get Godzillas. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I of all the comic panels that uh, that they could possibly ever uh, bring to the movies, that's one that I'd like to see done because it, it just it does make certain measures of evil and pettiness seem ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's, it's, it's just so out there, and it's somebody who's just straight chaotic evil. It, it could be fun if you do it the right way. Yeah. It's like you, you have all these other villains who have these complicated backstories and motivations. And it's like you can kind of see where they're coming from. But then there's this guy. Dinosaurs. Why? <laughs> and 
and the, the the pure confusion that Spidey would emanate just from having to deal with this. Like, why? Why? Dinosaurs? What? Why? Uh, okay. As well as this, there was a sly meta-narrative dig at legitimate actors complaining in real-life interviews, I won't name names, that nobody cares anymore unless you're putting on a cape. Uh, that's a that's a bit of an odd take. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna make a stand on anything, I, okay. So Jake Gyllenhaal specifically, like this guy has really made a name for himself doing these weird indie films that are actually very good. Things like Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler and Enemy yeah. and yeah stuff like that that are super super niche genre films. Well, have you seen Prisoners? I don't know. I, uh, yeah, Prisoners That's too. him and Jack. Um, you know, and had a very uh, very decent role in things like Zodiac and things like that. Donnie Darko, of course, uh, very, very early in his career. But, By the way, know, folks, I, none of these are films that we're going to be covering on our show, except Donnie Darko, which we already did. Very heavy sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, already did. Um, but there's a... I don't know. I would almost say that I care more about those films than I care about Jake Gyllenhaal putting on a cape and a suit for something like this. I was very happy that he got to cash a gigantic paycheck of, as a result of this film and is is now going to be like, well, I'm perfectly comfortable and now I can just go right back into my indie filmmaking and, and keep going with that until I die because now I've got Marvel money. I'm very happy for him in that sense. But I'm I'm more excited for the smaller films that someone like this actor does. I'm more excited for the smaller films that a lot of the other Marvel actors do. You are and, a uh, fearsome appreciator of film. And I think what this was getting at more was not that that's what everyone thinks, but that's what the majority of entertainment articles seem to center around. Mm. <laughs> It's difficult. Uh, put it like this: I've seen enough people being asked that question and responding with roughly that answer to feel like this was a dig at them in a kind of a ah ah. This is what you sound like, guys. Uh, way. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it was necessarily spiteful. At its worst, it's M Night Shyamalan turning that uh, critic in uh, Lady in the Water uh, into yeah, the, the villain. Yeah, the Lady in the Water critic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. At oh, its uh, worst, it's, a, it's, it's a that. Bit of that. At its best, they don't belabor it too much. They also, I mean, there's something to be said for him being wrong. Like, he's he's not right. Like, that that can be a bit of a dig, but at the end of the day, like, people putting their passion into something is what people respond to. Keanu Reeves hasn't put on a cape yet, and people went ape over <laughs> Keanu Reeves, like, nine different times this year. Just this year. It's like, he's got a dog. He's in a movie on Netflix. He's at E3. We love you, Keanu. And, you know, he's not in one of these yet, so... I mean, obviously, it's just you've just got to be passionate about stuff. Um, I I just love that they they give him the fishbowl helmet and the green suit and the purple cape, and they they sort of ground it in a okay. Well, here's why we have to do that so that they can maintain the illusion and track him from all these different angles and get this right and get that right. But they gave him the fishbowl helmet. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the fact. I love the fact that they keep the fishbowl helmet. He's a very weird villain, and they do make him work. The frustrating thing that I found about this this whole venture is, again, a, a bit like Killmonger in Black Panther. He's gone now. They yeah. used him uh, once, and now we'll never have him again. Now, what he does in 
far from home. What he does in this film has lasting consequences as, you know, if you sit through all of the end credits, you will see how that plays out. But the actual person, the actual character villain of Mysterio is now kind of gone, unless they actually do open up the whole multiverse thing, which he hinted at earlier in the film, and they bring him back from some other dimension if they bring him some from some other part of the multiverse Mm. and it's like oh that's such a shame like he was a very different sort of villain than the marvel universe has seen before and this is kind of it for him at least for now and i just it's it's a continual frustration i have about some of the villains in these movies is they are so quick to kill them off when they have a lot to offer and if they just spared a couple of them they could have continuing stories they could come back up they could reuse all of these fantastic actors that they keep casting in them and the scheduling thing might be uh that might be a factor in it i don't know but it really would be nice if they kept on some of these compelling villains that they they seem to kill off on uh, at every chance that they get so what you're saying is how are you supposed to have a sinister six if you can't count a six I'm saying, why would you... All I'm saying is, perfectly good waste of Michael B. Jordan, perfectly good waste of Jake Gyllenhaal. What are you doing, Marvel? Wouldn't you want to keep these guys on for a couple of films? Hmm. Just saying. Okay. Mysterio being Mysterio, they could find out... They could could have some way worked out where he fooled uh, Edith and faked his own death and just cut his losses and got out of there for now. And he's going to come back later. That is possible. It we'll seems see, like it we'll would see be. What a, happens. It seems like it would be a terrible waste to not least have him in some capacity for the fallout of this. I mean, like they Norman Osborn reappeared in both Spider-Man sequels. So did Uncle Ben. Dennis Leary's Captain Stacy came back in Amazing. Being dead does not stop you being on screen. There could be an incredible amount of influence still, but at the same time, he was a great screen presence and having him actually there, especially since he has to account for what he's done, and might eventually think, that might have been overdoing it a bit. That old, like, Lyra asked, why did he do that? And uh, Sharon said, from out of hell's heart, I stab at thee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does kind of run the risk of, if you keep him around for too long, it does a bit run the risk of he's just going to be another Loki, if Loki's even still around anymore. And I understand that, but I also really like Loki, so I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that either. It just seems like such a waste to to have some of these villains that have a little bit more to offer than, say, the villains we get in the Green Lantern, something like that, or... The Cloud? The, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> or the um, uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, where they're just like, oh, they're going to be doing something different with them. Oh, nope, nope, just the same thing again. <laughs> All right. Everyone's still obsessed with uh, with Norman Osborn. Okay, fine. Okay, just to go to rewind it to a few, uh, a few minutes ago, um, you said that Mysterio is wrong, and that people do care about uh, such superstars as Keanu Reeves the algorithm on YouTube states that you get more hits when you make a Marvel video than if you make one about my dinner with Andre content creators are as a result under 
some not inconsiderable pressure to do videos musing on Marvel to make sure they get hits. This very podcast, the number of shows downloaded goes up when we do a Marvel and then back down again the next week. So there is some validity to that claim. But you're right about the fact that he's not right about everyone and he's not right where it counts. Ultimately, you can be a superhero and be talked about all the time, but he's not seeing how many people freaking hated Tony Stark, them included. It's not great being a superhero. People try to kill you all the time. You might get wiped from existence. The very first lines of the first Sam Raimi film are that Peter Parker saying he doesn't have a happy life. Plus, what Mysterio seems to be forgetting is that people like Mysterio will do this sort of stuff to him. Meta-narratively, in terms of like you know being in a superhero movie and uh, being of particular popularity and, and other actors going, well, no one cares unless you're in a superhero movie. If you are in a superhero movie, then you are kind of trapped. And you were saying, Sharon, about the whole abs thing that's happened recently. Um, uh, do you want to... Yeah, this was something that cropped up on Twitter as a result of a picture of Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa Mm -hmm. of the astounding physique um, being a picture being taken of him just, you know, chilling out on a beach somewhere. And he is looking a little softer than he was when he filmed Aquaman, which, you know, in between movies, I think he has a right to be whatever shape he wants to be. Still, by the way, a phenomenal physique and looking in incredible shape. And, um, you know, mostly joking, a lot of people were sort of calling him, uh, saying he's getting a little bit fat and he's got a bit of a dad bod on him and all that kind of thing. And... It was pointed out by a few people who are familiar with the biology of this kind of thing that he's probably healthier and in better shape than he was while he was doing the movie because there has been over recent years a bit of a move towards the standard of male beauty being this kind of roided up, very cut, accentuated abdominal muscles look which is actually nigh on impossible to achieve for in a anybody, healthy way. In, in, for anybody healthy um, who is a, a fully grown adult because your body fat percentage just doesn't allow it to happen. And in order for them to look that defined, they have to fast, they have to dehydrate themselves for the, for the day leading up to the filming. And um, I, I don't know how accurate these observations were, but somebody mentioned that apparently uh, both Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds have had scenes where they've had to be that sharp and afterwards they could barely move because they were just, you know, they hadn't drunk anything, they hadn't eaten, they were just exhausted. Um, There's a, a certain basic irony in the idea of forcing Aquaman to dehydrate. Well, indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but and I think and I think sorry, Sharon, I think that's accurate, though, just, uh, you know, commenting back on that thing that that sounds about right, especially because a lot of times to get that much definition, you have to do things like cut, like if you're uh, trying to get to a certain weight class and that involves shedding pretty much all of your water weight, which can very quickly dehydrate mm. you. 
Mm. So effectively, uh, you as a superhero, this is why Chris Hemsworth was not happy with Thor for quite a few years. He was not happy with coming on screen, playing this theatrical character with not too much to do, and then having to stay in this crazy shape, uh, eating steamed chicken and potatoes all the time and keeping these horrendous abs. It's noteworthy that as of Ragnarok, he's slimmed down and is still insanely cut but he doesn't have to retain quite so much muscle mass and doesn't have to go shirtless quite so often. And I remember being quite critical of like, if you don't like it, Chris, stop. But if that, that is going to fuck you up eventually. And so even though you are being paid attention to and adulated, there comes with that an incredible amount of expectation. And effectively they are trapping Jason Momoa in the Aquaman physique. Mm. And if he doesn't, he's immediately called dad bod. Or fish belly. Well, it's it's an extension of the uh, the the beauty standards that have been imposed on women yeah. for decades. The whole, you know, you, you, we need you to be tighter, and we need you to be like, you know, about twenty pounds thinner than the already incredibly thin that you are. And it's it's not on. It's not fair. As we hate movies said, there was no reason for Star Lord to look like that in the original Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, it made sense for Chris Pratt to you know, lose some poundage because he was not in shape at all in uh, uh, Parks and Rec. But to get it to that standard, you remember that shot where he gets covered in orange goop? Well, since then, he's not had to do quite so much shirtlessness. So mm. maybe he's, they've allowed him to just have a decent, normal body. Well, ultimately, what it comes down to is that there is a world of difference between we need you to be physically fit and in shape enough to do these stunts and, and go through these motions and do these actions. And we want you to look like you've just stepped off the front cover of a, a magazine. Oh, shit. And quite often those two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot look that way if you have the physical strength to do this thing. We're drifting into that territory again. Do you remember in uh, Infinity War where uh, uh, Rocket says, yeah, what are you talking about, Quill? You're one sandwich away from fat. And we laugh at Peter Quill for not look, having a body like Thor, the most amazing body in existence. Um, and then there's Fat Thor. And we got no end of shit for that Fat Thor section of our end game. I honestly, one person, you know who you are. I'm fine with you, mate. It's fine. Uh, mentioned Fat Thor and it started this colossal tirade on Twitter. And eventually I said, you know what, guys? I am going to have to delete my comments on Fat Thor because I can't handle this anymore. And I wasn't even Chris Hemsworth. I was just talking about Chris Hemsworth. The amount of people weighing in on the appropriate weight and way to treat people of slightly larger size and why this was okay and why this wasn't okay. It drove me spare and I wasn't the person of different weight in question. Uh, and, and I seem to recall us like having a pretty even balance of like, well, okay, this part was okay. Well, okay, this part wasn't okay. Okay, yeah. moving on. But you a lot of this Twitter opinions, shit but... happened regardless oh, yeah. of what we said on the podcast. Everyone wanted to weigh in. And like I said, I was just like, you know what? Deleting it. Do not want to be having this conversation anymore. Then quit Twitter for a bit. It is a fairly recent sort of thing because, I mean, if you if you look at, okay, I, I'm a fan of the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan films from the 1930s. Johnny Weissmuller. Oh, the racist Olympic swim. Oh, they're <laughs> very racist. It's awful. Um, 
but I, I saw them as a kid and I, I didn't know any better. I was, I was six. Anyway, um, Johnny Weissmuller, Olympic swimmer, world-class athlete, could kick basically anyone who shit talked his dad bod's ass on Twitter. <laughs> um, he didn't look like the way we picture superheroes now. He was like, he's kind of tall. He's got broad shoulders and fairly slim. He's got a bit of a barrel chest. But he didn't have huge biceps. He didn't have nine thousand abs. He didn't like. He didn't have a nine pack. Like that. That's that's not the way humans are supposed to look. And we've only like within the last twenty to thirty years even expected everyone to look like that because it used to be that only a couple dudes looked like that. It was just Schwarzenegger. And it was yeah. just Van Damme. And it was just Stallone. And everyone else. You could just be Bruce Willis. Now, if you were making Die Hard, Bruce Willis would have to look like frickin' Stallone. Mm, yeah. And we were watching Dragon the Bruce Lee story earlier mm-hmm. today. And in the, the point where Jason Scott Lee has the fight with the, the representative of the Chinese elders. Johnny Sun. Yeah. I, it, it struck me that these guys clearly both in astounding physical shape in terms of what they're able to pull off the fights and the choreography and and the, just the strength that they have to be able to do that but they're not particularly defined in terms of of where you are able to see the muscles unless they're specifically tensing them in order for you to be able to do so and it's yeah it just just people are shapes deal with it not everyone has a sinister six pack <laughs> I did not expect for us to talk for this long about standards of male beauty, but it is exemplary of the whole, the double-edged sword of if you're not wearing a cape, no one wants to talk about you. And again, this is that whole, oh, do you want to be an Avenger? Have all the Avengers in the world. Do you want to be a superhero? Have all the superheroes in the world. Um, It's the Oscar Wilde thing of uh, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting getting it. you You look really pretty. Therefore, I have value? No. No, that's not what I meant at all. I was just... I'm messing with you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You look pretty, too. Oh, my gosh, opera glasses. So cute. Can I... Want to go in on a pair? You mean let's sit next to each other? Yeah. Parker, are you in position? No. Okay, no. Why the hell not? You don't want to sit next to me here. No, you you just don't want to take the (laughs) glasses. I didn't mean that. uh, uh, If you go ahead, I'll go grab us a pair. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm coming. I'm... We don't talk about them much on this show, but uh, Ned and Betty and Brad and the teachers and especially MJ, these are all things that are very much the teenage side of Peter's life and they're things that Peter deserves and needs to remain relatively stable and bolted down and remember who he is and he can't have it's an extension of that scene in uh, homecoming where he wants to go with liz and the uh, other kids in his quiz group and just party but he decides to go off and be spider-man tony stark has done his partying he's had his life and his fun way before he puts on the iron man armor it bought him a hollow existence and he made many choices which hurt people peter has already had the Iron Man responsibility heaped on him way earlier. And every decision he makes is about trying to minimize the hurt to other people. And as we said earlier, that's kind of a lie that Peter believes, that he can't have this. He's going to have to find some balance, or he won't be able to cope. And there's kind of a push-pull between responsibility that he places on himself and 
responsibility that other people give him, but just as quickly seem to want to take away. Either way, the more funny and adorable Peter's friends and colleagues are, and even Flash, the more kind of sad it is that he can't spend time with them without worrying about the much, much bigger picture. On a side note, I love that Michael Giacchino retained the new Spider-Man theme from Homecoming and brought it across to film two, so we get that consistency for Spider-Man that no other Marvel hero has apart from Captain America. I think I said back in 2017 that I didn't particularly love this new theme. I was an idiot, it's brilliant. So, so what is the chief difference between heroes and villains in the MCU? Because uh, Quentin Beck was angry at Tony Stark and wanted that limelight. He wanted people to talk about him. He said, they will listen to me. And then he kind of backpedaled and went, and to you guys, my soon-to-be-rich team. So what is the chief difference between heroes and villains in the MCU? Because effectively he has, within his grasp, incredible power. Do they believe the end justifies the means? And this, for me, was why Tony was always the antagonist of Civil War. Because if you believe that what you're trying to achieve ultimately is more important than the people you may harm in the process of trying to do that, then you are a villain, or at least you have a toe in the villain circle. And if you believe that protecting people and preventing harm is more important than any highfalutin ideal, then you're in the hero camp. And while Tony's ultimate aim in Civil War was to set up a system whereby harm was largely prevented and it was in fact motivated by wanting to undo harm that he himself had caused... Steve's take was more, we can't let the reach be that broad because then it's not up to us to control that harm anymore. He wanted to keep it close so that he could prevent the harm himself. The bad guys are often set up to be, they have a point. They are trying to achieve something that is important and they or they have a goal or it's it's not always just as simple as they have selfish interests and quite a lot of the time the heroes have selfish interests Mm. so I think for me it comes down to actions and how much your immediate actions are geared towards stopping people getting hurt the selfish versus selfless is an important part but it's definitely only part of the most successful villains in the mcu because a lot of the the villains who have a point um killmonger the vulture they have selfish interests even though their grievances are legitimate there's also a how much are we going to leave the world a better place than we found it because so many of the villains They'll be like, I have to either get back something that was taken from me or get something to provide for my family. But what they're going to do is 
is harm the greater sphere in a very big way. Um, and this is this is one of the things that I enjoy about the Vulture, and I I would have loved to see much more played on. Is that if the Vulture keeps selling energy weapons, you're going to have the worst gang war in history in New York with all of those energy weapons. These like, yeah, no, sure, I'm just putting these out there. It gets my family our mortgage paid, but. New York is going to get ripped apart by like the kingpins and the tombstones who now all have laser guns. That's the big difference. And while I'd love to see more Quentin Beck in the MCU, just because he's really fun, um, especially the way Jake Gyllenhaal plays him just a little bit too nice and then really well played as a dick. The dichotomy of this is what we're going to do to just burn things down and get our peace versus this is what I'm going to do to possibly get burned, but leave things better than I found them, which is the path Peter takes. There was an abiding theme in this film of the truth is what the news says is true. Is this new for Spider-Man, and why might it feel sharply relevant now? Fake oh, news. <laughs> oh, boy. The fact that J. Jonah... Oh, wait. The fact that J. Jonah Jameson, now in this version, is basically Alex Jones. <laughs> I mean, down to the fact that the font that was on um, the the screen when they showed him in the, the mid-credits... It is, I think it's the exact same font as they use in InfoWars. Really? If I'm not mistaken, or it is very, very close. Oh, wow. Green Goblin vomit. <laughs> Sorry. If they, okay, all right. If, if J. Jonah Jameson doesn't say that at some point in the film, I, I uh, just just cancel the whole thing. Cancel the whole thing. You've wasted, you've wasted this uh, reimagining of J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> I won't lie. I freaking screamed when J.K. Simmons showed up. <laughs> Me too. I, I yelled out loud. screamed and... Not just because it's him, but also because he freaking burns Peter. And so you have this this great open road of we don't know where this is going to lead. There's no map for this. We don't know if they're going to walk it back in the next one or have a completely new status quo. Or if we're going to do a version of Spider-Man back in black after Civil War in the comics and maybe May's going to be in danger. We have no idea. Um, but this you're right. This is this is kind of scary because you could just get doxxed online and have people threaten you and swat you and send you death threats. And like, this could just happen to you. And so that basically happening to Spider-Man is, is not the least bit funny. It's not funny, but it is very dramatically compelling. Yes. Yes. And also there's no way of telling whether or not that video that was released is real or fake. It looks real enough, yeah. so everybody just kind of buys it. And I think that's a that's an important thing to keep in mind, too, is that a lot of things that have been identified as fake news are made in a way that it's just plausible enough. There's really a, a very fine line where you can tell that it's fake and you actually can't. The whole the, deep fake thing, it's, mm-hmm. it's freaking frightening. Did you uh, tell me recently, Sharon, that video is no longer admissible as evidence in court because you can now doctor it so easily? It's, it's not mm-hmm. that it's no longer admissible in court, but you basically have to have an expert mm. examine it to prove that it is legitimate and that it is, it's not been meddled with. But the, the whole sort of creating something that is taken as real, that is something that I think we do need to start becoming more 
aware of i mean and not from like a complete conspiracy theorist i won't believe anything that's put in front of me anymore angle but it is incredibly easy to sell something as legitimate when it isn't there was um the thing about uh people outraged that Ariel had been cast as a, a, a black actress in the Little Mermaid remake. Probably not Ugh. all of the objections, but at least one of the objections that went viral was demonstrated to be a bot and was being perpetuated by loads of people who were retweeting it and saying, you know, oh, this is a terrible attitude to have. Eventually you reach a point where it kind of doesn't matter whether it's a bot or a person, their motives are the same wandering around a heavily wooded area, tossing down small fires. Or an automated system designed by a human version of the above to do the same thing. Then when you have a situation where something like that is being circulated and does go viral, and somebody works out that, wait, wait, hang on a minute, this is not real... First of all, that isn't going to go anywhere near as wide as the original yeah. post. Secondly, you're then presented with a, well, why? Who put it out there? Is this something that someone put down as some kind of weird marketing because they just wanted everybody to pay attention? Or is it somebody who's trying to seed outrage and seed dissension and keep everybody agitated and chaotic, which right now seems like the more viable option? And you've got the no smoke without fire concept which is that once the idea is out there yeah then it brings the people out of the woodwork who are agreeing with it and it's impossible to kill it do you think if richard gear ever goes into a pet shop he's going to ask for a gerbil ever oh. no it doesn't matter that not a shred of that is true enough people believe that shit mm. enough for, for it to be considered even if, if it's... If, like, this is what pre-this age was considered to be an urban legend. And now it's just something which we kind of look at as bullshit, but enough people believe it. And that's how shysters like uh, Alex Jones are actually able to profiteer off this. Mm. Because they can peddle enough crazy shit about, like, a Pizzagate conspiracy of Hillary Clinton uh, 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 sacrificing children underneath a pizzeria. Uh, you, you say enough very specific crazy shit enough times it feels like it's real and snopes.com and fact checking websites that are desperately trying to help with this kind of thing either they're snowed under and they can't keep up or they're just ignored or you know worst case scenario are actively told to stop doing mm. what they're doing and it's like when newspapers print a retraction to their massive banner headline yeah, from several and it's days two ago lines at the bottom of page Bingo. the few people who do read that know the truth but the majority are still in the dark Back in 2017 with Homecoming, a lot of fans lamented the lack of a spider sense being outright spelled out for us. Now that it has been, can the Peter Tingle be interpreted as not only something that Spidey has, but something we can find use for in ourselves? Yes. And I will explain. <laughs> explain. 
it's it's, yeah. it's about no. trusting your intuition and yes exactly your, your your gut is is right more often than not we're told uh, by by news and media and special effects even to to trust what we see but as soon as peter closed his eyes and trusted his, his intuition and what his senses were telling him uh, he he succeeded whereas trusting his eyes got him into trouble Mm-hmm. It's it's going it's shifting from relying on something external to move through what you need and shifting from that into something internal. It's it's your, the internal force that drives you forward instead of external things um, uh, imposing on what you're doing. So his actions are now coming from within instead of from without, which is actually quite a, a big part of his grieving process as well. It's epitomizes a way that you can look at anxiety in the sense that anxiety is a natural human function ramped up to a level that is no longer helpful because you're responding to threats that not so much don't exist but are not external they're not out there in the world they are not immediately bearing down on you with great big sharp pointy teeth and you don't need to start bracing yourself for the impact of the saber-toothed tiger so the whole trust the peter tingle for me was kind of a feel the reality of what's there rather than trying to battle the illusion and I have been going through an extended period of quite intense anxiety recently and watching Far From Home kind of broke the back of it for me because I had You were I freaking out during the uh, big Mysterio I was. illusion sequences. It was, it was really getting me, like, I, I couldn't breathe properly and I was getting really, really tense and het up about it they were extremely effective for just throwing you especially when it kept cutting back to what seemed to be real and then wasn't absolutely but it was it was the fact that the that it kept looping and that every time peter was trying to kind of blink himself out of the illusion something else would come along and it just wouldn't stop and that's basically what my brain's been doing to me for about the last fortnight (laughs) and when he hit on the the solution of get inside the illusion, it was like light bulb went on. To bust into the inside of the elemental where it's clear. Absolutely. So he can still see it, but he's now seeing the inside of it and he's seeing how it's working. Backstage. Yeah. And the the trusting the Peter Tingle is obviously what enabled him to go, that's not real, I need to get inside this. Which could be just a metaphor for reading up on shysters like uh, um, Alex Jones and going, oh, so this is how he does it. Okay, so I never need to believe a damn thing this guy ever says again, even if I have never did. It's also a very apt sort of, it's an update of getting into the eye of the storm and that being the place where you're safe and can collect yourself and can see where the patterns are. Uh, in a in a way that we've never really seen visualized before, but it's also a way of you have to find a way of dealing with this giant thing that you've been avoiding and that you've been on the outskirts of because Peter's kind of been letting this this thing batter him about, but getting inside the illusion, 
trusting the Peter Tingle and and having it lead him into you know the inside the illusion, the eye of the hurricane. That's how he's able to to deal with the situation. That's where he confronts the trauma of like this this father figure that was flawed and led him astray, and how it's kind of reminding him of the father figure that the father figures that he's lost. Um, but it's also a you know don't don't let yourself get distracted and don't try and rationalize against things that you already know are true. Like if you've got a Peter Tingle that's trying to tell you something and if you know that something is right, then don't find ways to rationalize against that because I mean, you, you can certainly find facts, but rationalizing yourself away from truth is, uh, you know, again, how you get caught up in the whole fake news cycle of like, well, no, of course, you know, there's there's no way those can be concentration camps hmm. or in fact not having to do any reading not having to uh, do reading which again having come from a person is flawed to be able to shut off from the one thing that so much of this stuff seems to be wanting to jab at which is our fear buttons that's most of what mysterio was doing was trying to get people afraid If you can not shut off fear, acknowledge that the thing that is making you afraid is there, but just be able to push through it to make your decisions based on what you actually see, you can proceed with caution and actual rationality without this fear response allowing you to be manipulated. If everybody could do that, the world would be a better place tomorrow. And it's also going to be the thing that allows you to actually change your situation instead of the situation doing things to you. Mm. To become uh, proactive rather than reactive. Yes. That's another of the ways that MCU villains and heroes are very different is fear versus hope or, uh, or, or protectiveness. Again, Peter and, and Mysterio are, are aiming for very different things. Mysterio wants to be the hero because he scares everyone. And Peter doesn't necessarily want recognition, but he wants the neighborhood to feel safe. You could simply ask the question, why does this person want me to be scared? Nine simple words. Mm-hmm. Because scared people don't think. They react. Shit, man. It feels churlish to say that I really like Samuel L. Jackson's performance in this once I found out he was Talos. I don't know if we find... I don't know if uh, Samuel L. Jackson was told at the end of filming, oh, by the way, you were this guy. And he's like, what? Uh, Or, way better, if he was told from Jump Street, oh, by the way, that guy Talos that uh, you were hanging around with in Captain Marvel, he's you the whole way through, so play him a bit like him. And if you go back and watch just bits of uh, uh, Nick Fury's acting, it's Talos. I could be wrong on that one. I hope I'm right. The way he and uh, Maria Hill, or in quotes, Maria Hill, interact. Oh, fake Maria uh, Hill. Yeah, she... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) She she actually calls him Nick at one point, and he very specifically says... Yeah, she, she, he very specifically says in Captain Marvel, I'm not on first-name basis with anyone. Nice. So it's like, that was a tell. And it's like they, the way they sort of exchanged looks with each other throughout is on a second viewing, it's really kind of, I was like, oh, oh, I see that. That's that's not the way they would act. Okay, that makes sense. 
they telegraph it, which is very subtle. There are occasional inflections in the way he speaks. He seems to be a little more out of his depth than Fury normally is, a little less cool. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, I was I was thrown because the last time we really saw Fury do much of anything, he was a greenhorn, and uh, he I, I, honestly the first time through until I got the Talos reveal, I was like, I miss old Nick. He was helpful rather than crotchety, but it makes so much more sense now that it's 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 Talos, and I inferred from the very end credits stinger that uh, Fury may or may not have been on the space base place from uh, Captain Marvel that might have been repurposed into sword base which is basically well, astonishing like, right yeah it's the earth defense force version of shields they deal mostly with alien threats and if there's a large amount of scrolls in there they can do something like secret invasion and not have it be racist that way they can have like the, a splinter group of these guys are now uh, uh, trying to you know upset things on earth and we're all going to try and stop him with a few of our human buddies Bring me Abigail Brand or bring me death. We also want Abigail Brand. <laughs> <laughs> See, with, with, with all those friendly scrolls present, you could also deflect uh, in the next story, deflect from Peter by having one of the scrolls disguise himself as Peter oh. and be seen with Spider-Man. Oh. And say, oh, I'd, oh, it's just not true. I mean, look, he's right here next to me. It is a good way of getting that back, but maybe he'll be faced with can I do this or shall I just be Peter? That, that's an actual genuine choice. Like they present him with, look, this is, you know, agent so-and-so. He can be you. So you can say, I'm clearly not Peter Parker. Secret identity restored. Uh, but even that, under, under those circumstances, it being out, he's then got to stem the tide. So it's all speculative. But I, I did like the idea of Skrulls actually being like the definite good guy force and it being moving on from the kind of men in black flavored and all the baggage that carries with it a agents of shield if you're a fan of stranger things you will definitely want to be on our patreon this week because we have a two week quick review extravaganza looking at seasons two and three in two parts Now, this won't be anywhere near as thorough as our crazy deep commission on season one that we did back in 2017, but we talk about what we liked and what we didn't about the next two seasons, playing less attention to the nostalgic trappings and more to character development. Here's a clip. So, so you felt like uh, like kinship with Robin because yes. she had to deal with a bunch of chodes while yes. selling ice cream to Burks. It also didn't hurt, by the way, that she is the product of two of my favourite '90s actors. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people might not know this. Who is this? Uh, she is the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, and her voice is very much like her mum's, mm-hmm. and her. Eyes. Her eyes are very much like her dad's, but her look overall is a really attractive blend of both of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These episodes will be available on the bonus podcast feed to anyone generous enough to slip us five bucks a month or more. And our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, 
John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Now, to my guests, where can people find your best work? We will start with Brendan. Uh, well, you can find a Spider-Man Far From Home review that I wrote on normannerd.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BLCAgnew. And you can find my contribution to the previously mentioned Into the Spider-Verse that we covered on Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O just, uh, just this weekend. And Theo? I'm on a wonderful uh, alternate history podcast called New Century Multiverse. You may have heard of it. Um, And I am on Twitter at 1000 Days of Rain. And Maya? You can find me on Twitter at Maya Santandrea. If you want to talk video games or movies or geek stuff, I'm usually down to have a chat. Uh, If you have gotten to see Endgame, I'm in that as well. And apparently in the re-release, there's more of the some of the ND characters that we got to play. Some of the sorcerers, the Wakandans, uh, the people from the the Asgardians. So uh, when I went to... Okay, so a little bit of story. Went to see it again, and apparently uh, there were scenes where you could see more of, like, myself and some of the other people that were in the background in that big, big panning shot before they really go into all-out battle. So that was kind of cool. Please um, say they put that on the Blu-ray, because I need to freeze-frame that thing. I really hope that they do, because it, it was cool. There was definitely a little bit more of it, and you could see a little bit better some of the people that were in the background. So that was kind of nice. I'm going to need a uh, time code and then your address so that I can send you a print of that as a canvas. Oh, boy. I with know. A, a little <laughs> pointy red arrow. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, but we'll see. We'll see for the home release how they uh, if they keep those scenes or not. Um, and also, just to give it another little shout, um, if you have access to the DC um, online streaming service, do, te- do check out Doom Patrol. It's a really great show. It's a lot of fun. I ended up really loving it at the end, and I was in quite a few episodes of that as well. So, again, you can you can do the trial run and also check out Swamp Thing, which featured a lot of my friends. So, <laughs> so you know, do do the trial run, see Doom Patrol, see Swamp Thing. They're both really good. Thank you, Maya. Thank you. And that is all from us for this week. Next week, we continue our summer commission season with What We Do in the Shadows. Looking forward to that one. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
He's a menace. <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you. Buy my supplements. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, uh, you're, you're just gonna—you could feel yourself getting stronger when you drink this. Yeah. Mm. 